What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University. Today, we are continuing our COVID-19 series and jumping back into our narrative format. But first, um, well, I just wanted to share a story to start this episode. It seemed like the best way to do it. And I apologize if this is a little raw and unedited, but uh, bear with me and I appreciate your listening. So it was the spring of 2016, and all of a sudden one day I started experiencing symptoms unlike anything I had ever experienced up to that point in my life. Basically, I started to lose control of my muscles for like random periods and for varying durations throughout the day, but especially when I was trying to fall asleep. So, for example, my left foot would just start shaking uncontrollably for a minute, five minutes, ten minutes, or my torso, and this was the worst because it was really painful, but my torso would convulse so rapidly and with such intensity that I'd basically curl up into a fetal position involuntarily. And on top of that, like, my heart rate would spike and I'd feel lightheaded or a little nauseous. And these symptoms continued for a couple months. Um, But as these symptoms progressed and intensified, so did the severe sensation of disconnectedness with the world and even my body. So even when I wasn't experiencing what I would later as a coping mechanism term the shakes, uh, I felt awful. I felt detached and distant and lagging behind my own thoughts, lagging behind my own body, not to mention lagging behind the thoughts and bodies of the people around me. So this all reached a poignant crescendo one Sunday afternoon while on the phone with a friend, I suddenly asked him if I could call him back in a bit and just hung up the phone. So I'm just sitting there on my couch talking to a friend in my apartment. My heart rate was suddenly unnaturally fast for having just been lying around the apartment talking on the phone. But I also felt faint and sick to my stomach. My body tingled. I mean, my skin felt uncomfortable in a way that is like really difficult to explain. But if you ever felt this you know what I'm talking about like my skin just felt so weird anyway I knew I needed to go to the hospital because as I said it had been a couple months of feeling this way and this was like a particularly uh, sharp moment so I tried to take myself to the hospital but I was so disoriented that I had to walk back up the stairs to my third story apartment using all fours so imagine imagine me I'm like doing a bear crawl up the stairs and down the hallway so I get inside my apartment I try to calm myself down kept feeling worse and worse so finally I decided I need to call 911 and jump cut to these amazing very helpful and kind EMTs uh, did the driving to the hospital for me if I may put it that way Uh, that was my first and hopefully only trip in an ambulance so anyways this starts off a string of me going to various doctors doing numerous tests this terrible feedback loop of uncertainty and fear you know more sleepless nights wondering what was happening to me and why it wasn't so readily diagnosable eventually i went to a neurologist wonderful neurologist he took a look at me told me i wasn't dying prescribed some meds and things gradually got back to normal so the way the neurologist described it is like this basically my body was in a permanent fight or flight response So I was constantly charged and ready to run or defend my life, which would make for a great premise of a Jason Statham movie. The problem was this was my actual life and these symptoms would just flare up on me when I was reading or exercising or, as I said, just talking on the phone to a friend. The neurologist wouldn't definitively name the root cause, but his best guess is that it was anxiety. 
So there I am in my mid-30s, taking anti-seizure meds, visiting a neurologist occasionally, going to therapy for the first time in my life, taking antidepressants, and trying to find better and healthier ways to recognize, express, and deal with my anxiety. But if you're wondering why I'm telling you this, I'm, I'm sharing this with you because, one, I know many of us out there have these stories to share, and I just want to you know, open up those doorways for reasons you'll find out in a minute when we start to talk to some of our guests today. But also, there's this age-old philosophical question um, about how our mind interacts with our body. Or, you know, There's also questions about what the role of the brain is and how it relates to our mind. Is the term mind even useful or accurate? So as I'm experiencing all of this, I'm starting to think about these philosophical questions like what is my brain and how does it interact with my body and my mind, if, if those even are philosophical questions. Due to time constraints, we'll just call it that, we'll say time constraints, we're not going to be able to resolve such philosophically uh, hearty issues as mind-body problems, but we will be talking about our bodies and our minds and the health of both during the pandemic, uh, how we experience the uncomfortable potential of contracting the silent and microscopic COVID-19, and how our social isolation and the economic effects of the pandemic are affecting our mental health in particular. So I wanted to start by sharing a story about a time in my life in which I felt very uncomfortable in my own body. And I'm going to be honest, it was scary as hell, and I hope that I never, and that no one else ever has to experience what I did back in the spring of 2016. But I'm also acutely aware that many people have had much more severe, much worse, and frankly, fatal symptoms and illnesses, including those who have suffered or died from COVID-19 recently. When we began recording these interviews, we had no idea how insightful, but also personal and uplifting the words our guests shared with us would be at times, but definitely one of the most powerful moments from our interviews, and one that certainly put my bout with the shakes into perspective, was a moment from our interview with Purdue Philosophy graduate student Tom Doyle. You may recall from a previous episode that Tom is currently writing his dissertation on the phenomenology of illness. We can think of the phenomenology of illness as the study of how we experience illness in and with our bodies, as well as how we experience our bodies in illness. Anyway, sorry to ramble on, but thanks everybody for listening. If you're still listening, I appreciate that. But to go on with the episode, as you'll hear from Tom Doyle here, he has a very personal reason for pursuing this subject, the phenomenology of illness, in his dissertation. The way that I've come to uh, kind of this topic is kind of a very personal experience. Um, so my second year at Purdue, I'm a graduate student, of course, at Purdue, and second year at Purdue, I was experiencing uh, these strange kind of symptoms of just like fatigue, uh, muscle weakness, um, night sweats, uh, low-grade fever. And, you know, when you're, when you're a graduate student and you're 23 years old at the time, and I was like, hmm, I should probably go to the doctor, but uh, I'm 23. So I, I'm just thinking that, you know, nothing's really wrong with me. But eventually I had to go to the doctor just for like my biannual physical or whatnot and got some blood tests done and uh, blood test came back. Not so good. Lo and behold, <laughs> Two months later, after those blood tests, I was uh, in a biopsy room getting my lymph node biopsied for Hodgkin's lymphoma. So second year 
at Purdue, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer of the lymph nodes. So, you know, I originally come to Purdue wanting to do history of philosophy. My major interest was Spinoza. And then I had this experience, which was incredibly profound of, of having an illness. And I w- it really opened my eyes to realizing that philosophy serves a greater purpose, at least for me, by looking at more than just historical investigations, but looking at the present day and kind of the practical applications of philosophy. So I was, ex- I was experiencing my illness and I was realizing that I could be better suited doing things other than the history of philosophy. That's not to take a knock at the history of philosophy. I love Spinoza. But I think that for me, I came to this in a very personal way. And I was able to realize that phenomenology was was allowing me to investigate that. So I did a lot of research into like the medical humanities, into like what what is phenomenology of illness um, during my time uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I, I kind of developed a dissertation from there. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. Tom Doyle's story was humbling, to say the least. It put my experience with anxiety and my neurological reaction to it into perspective. But if our stories share a common thread, it is the sudden and uncomfortable presence of our bodies. For most of us, our body is something we take for granted. Sure, it can be an occasional burden when we experience pain or illness, or have to use physical skills and force we don't have to complete a task. And it can require time and effort to keep healthy, in shape, and functioning sharply and at a high level. And certainly there are populations of people differently abled or suffering from chronic or terminal conditions who experience their body in a much more acute way. But for many people, even when we have fleeting moments during our day when we feel a tinge of muscle pain in our neck or we respond to an environmental condition, so much of what our body does happens in the background. Involuntary processes that just happen as we go about the mechanics of daily living. There are those unfortunate occasions or periods of our lives when our bodies announce themselves in a disruptive way. Our body starts to talk to us in a sense, and not in a polite conversational tone, an indoor voice. Sometimes, it feels like our body is screaming at us, and this forces us to pay attention to our body in a way we typically do not on a day-to-day basis during our waking hours. Here, Tom addresses the typical background experience of our body, our lack of awareness of it, and what he calls a distinction between quiet and loud bodies. So a major work that anybody interested on kind of this question of, you know, the absence of the body is a work by Drew Later called um, The Absent Body, which really investigates how in contemporary philosophy, when we talk about embodiment, 
it's really kind of a struggle to make people realize how much of their life is really influenced by the type of body that they have or the way that they're embodied in the world. I like to think of it as a, a distinction between something being quiet and loud. When our bodies are being quiet, we really don't recognize anything about them. It almost feels like we're just floating through the world, um, almost unaware of that our moving to the kitchen or our moving around a space necessarily requires some cooperation through our bodies. And it's kind of mind boggling to think about the fact that our bodies are so coordinated and that we are able to interact with the world in such a way that we can just almost fluidly go through the motions that we go through in everyday life. So I think we take a bit for granted about um, just our embodiment and the way that our embodiment influences ourselves. This distinction between quiet and loud bodies is particularly intriguing to us especially this example that you'll hear Tom use in a minute of how a body can be loud when doing something as every day as running on a treadmill. Those of us that do, or in my case, way back when did run, know this feeling. There's, to extend the metaphor, a very loud conversation between us and our body when 10 minutes into our Sunday run you feel a hamstring start to yell at you, or a shin start to sing a bit. For people like me, there is, of course, the elliptical machine. But lightheartedness aside, when a body is suffering from a major illness, there are aspects of the illness that can catch us off guard and start to present themselves in very discomforting ways. To call back to our first episode, Tom uses the term dis-ease to describe this feeling of discomfort. So a loud body is one that is presenting itself, announcing itself, making itself heard in a way that disrupts the typical, background, involuntary ease of inhabiting our skin. For Tom, understanding the distinction between ease and dis-ease is central to his work on the phenomenology of embodiment and illness. A loud body is really that type of body that recognizes something is up or there's some dysfunction or even, you know, in moments of exercising as well, um, just to give a very mundane example, when you're running on the treadmill, I don't know if any of the listeners are runners, but there comes a time for me when I'm running on the treadmill And I'll get to, you know, I can start off and I don't really notice that, you know, I'm running on the treadmill. I'm kind of lost in a podcast or a song or something. But then there will get get to a particular point where I I start to realize I'm getting tired or I'm getting winded or my legs are starting to hurt or, um, you know, something's up. And then for the rest of the time on the treadmill, that's the only thing that I'm really focusing on. So I think my body has become loud in that sense. And then relating that to you know my personal experience with cancer, um, one of the symptoms of Hodgkin's lymphoma that was particularly irritating for me was the um, itching. So one of the, mm. uh, for whatever reason, there is a sensation of itchiness that comes with uh, this type of cancer. And I just remember... Uh, that was the most irritating symptom because always I was aware of a part of my body in dysfunction. It was always itching or it was always like being irritated in some way. And so I think most instances of uh, disease, and I use the word disease as a opposition to like the medical term disease. Um, so dis hyphen ease because it's really a personal experience where you notice that something's up with the ease that you experience in the world. So when you're diseased, mm-hmm. you experience some dysfunction in the world, you experience something not going right. And so really, I think loudness is associated with that disease within the body. 
and recognizing that I think is key to the phenomenology of embodiment. This idea of our body, our embodiment, as central to the human experience may seem intuitive to some listeners. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is a philosophical tradition that explores these mind-body problems, including how our mind relates to our body. The work of certain phenomenologists in the early 20th century placed our body as primary to our experience and perception of the world, and Tom's and others' work in the phenomenology of illness continues this tradition. What makes a pandemic like the current novel coronavirus interesting, in one aspect, is that this is a very social experience of the loudness or dis-ease of our bodies, even for those of us that do not, as far as we are aware, have the virus. If we think back to February and March, when news of the virus really started to take up daily real estate in our news feeds, we heard so much about the symptoms, what to watch out for in our own bodies, or those with whom we live and spend our time, and for whom we provide care. But there was a social effect of starting to look at and for bodies demonstrating certain potential symptoms. Seeing someone sneeze in public has taken on a much different weight these past few months than maybe it had previously for some of us, myself included. There was also the fact that a virus is silent, odorless, shapeless to the naked eye. That is, we cannot see the virus, but we know that it could be in other bodies we encounter, on surfaces for some duration of time, in the air... I think this is why the idea of asymptomatic carriers, a term that I was unfamiliar with before the spring of 2020, was so unsettling to many people. With that potential in mind, anyone and everyone could be a diseased body, one toward which we need to exercise caution, if only in the sense of remaining physically distanced and wearing face coverings. It is this social sense of the broader public being potential asymptomatic carriers that, Tom thinks, will give more people a perspective on, or sense of, the vulnerability of our bodies. It is also a reason to think that after the pandemic subsides, many people will not be able to return to their previous social practices and interactions so easily. Marlou Ponty has the idea of our embodiment is really our anchor of the world, so the body is the way that we come to have a world and interact with it. And I really think that by having a collective experience, I think that nobody in the world that has access to uh, news in some way, shape, or form has not had the collective experience of paranoia about COVID. And uh, unfortunately, you know, people who have lost loved ones are going to experience COVID through through a, a lens of sadness and fear. And I think that just generally what pandemics make us realize is the vulnerability of our bodies. And when we experience that vulnerability collectively, I think the entire world, we can see that the entire world is now engaging in behaviors that are different from the way that they've done things prior. So I wouldn't be surprised if COVID-19 just being a global pandemic produces a different way that we interact with each other. I I think that social distancing is not going to go away just simply by people telling us that we no longer need the social distance. I think that that thing's going to be in some way ingrained into our unconscious behaviors and the way that we use our bodies. And and I I think ultimately the difference that we're going to see is we're going to see a world much more engaged in in talking about health in a different way. 
If we are indeed entering an era of a new, or at least significantly different social understanding of the vulnerability of our bodies and the role our bodies play in the potential spread of COVID-19 and other current and future communicable diseases, this would likely entail not only new social practices becoming the norm, physical distancing, reduced number of people at gatherings, working and schooling from home as a more standard practice, etc., it also means we will have other new behaviors for how we treat and manage our own bodies and the bodies of others, especially where hygiene is concerned. One example is the elbow bump in place of the handshake, a hopefully commonplace hygiene practice that took on a new significance and importance during this time was hand washing. Now, hand washing should have already been a regular part of our daily routine, and I know I'm not alone in being able to comfortably admit that I wash and sanitize my hands at every opportunity, even if I need to manufacture said opportunity. Sadly, however, for anyone listening who has ever used a public restroom, you know what I'm talking about when I say that for some people out there, hand washing is optional. But beyond hand washing, there is, as Tom explains here, another aspect to our social disease during the time of the novel coronavirus. The idea that we could be bringing the virus with us into our homes, our schools, our offices, and public places without knowing it, or even feeling all that under the weather ourselves, is frightening, especially if you are paying attention to the rise in cases and fatalities in your local community, let alone the entire world. I think many of us either develop for ourselves or know people who adopted new hygiene and re-entry protocols in the early stages of the pandemic just to feel comfortable walking back through our front doors. That's definitely just an embodied behavior that we can see. We should have been doing it all the time, but now it's on everybody's mind that when something happens, when you touch something, when you interact with something, when you go outside, when you come back in, you have to bring your body into the bathroom, you have to wash your hands, and you have to make sure that you're clean in in some way, shape or form. So uh, I think just the issue, just the idea of cleanliness, and the the role that that plays in a pandemic setting um, is just a particular instantiation of what we might be calling, you know, the social um, aspect of disease that everyone is feeling, um, that we constantly need to be hypervigilant and hyper aware of, you know, whether or not our bodies are clean, whether or not our hands are clean, whether or not we're doing everything to make sure that our physical environment is taken care of. And then if we don't do those things, we, we enter a sense of paranoia of like, what did I leave behind? What did I drag into my apartment or my home or something like that? I think it's just socially what we're experiencing is this, is this time of, of hyper awareness of something that's possible um, and something that that everyone is thinking about. Quick shout out, we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to recognize Associate Professor of Philosophy at Purdue, Donna Tulidziki. Donna, a philosopher of science, was interviewed on fellow pod NPR's shortwave in January, just as COVID-19 seemed to be beginning its swift global spread, to discuss Ignaz Semmelweis, the Hungarian physician who was credited with discovering the importance of antiseptic procedures and hand washing. You can find that pod on the shortwave feed, or by following us on social media, where we posted links to that episode. Moving away from the larger social behavioral changes, there is also the existential effect we feel as individuals. That is, many of us have spent some of this time working and or schooling from home, or being generally more socially isolated and less likely to leave the house, reflecting on not only public health, the economy, racial inequity and social injustice, and other systemic issues that seem now more than ever in desperate need of address, 
change, and deconstruction. But we were also considering our own personal health, job and financial security, day-to-day lives and existence, and the kind of person we want to be and the kind of life we want to live. Just a personal interjection, I certainly know that I've had a lot of self-reflection or, you know, isolated time to self-reflect these last couple months, and I would be lying if I didn't tell you that, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about who Matthew is and wants to be in the future. But to bring it back to this episode, Tom suggests that this self-reflection can be one of the benefits of experiencing disease in our bodies on the individual level. Perhaps unhelpfully, I think our society has kind of played a gatekeeping role on who we consider sick Mm. and who we consider diseased. And I really think that um, there are many situations in which case our body becomes, we become fully aware of our body in a way that isn't comfortable to us. Uh, So I think at any time in which someone feels discomfort, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a pain or necessarily um, maybe not even a symptom, but just anytime someone feels uncomfortable within their embodiment, I think that's a moment of disease. And Mm. I think there is a distinction to be made between whether or not we should medicalize disease. So whether or not every instance of our uncomfortable, uh, of an uncomfortable embodiment needs to be addressed through medicine, or whether or not this is just an existential characteristics of life that just a fact of being alive and being a human being, we necessarily have these moments of uncomfort in our Mm. body and that we can, we can examine those moments of disease to realize more about what does it mean to be embodied in the world? um, How does that change the way that we are in the world? And sometimes it can be helpful. I mean, sometimes we can think about, I, I have this disease and like myself, I experienced great disease. And I thought to myself, uh, what can I do with this differently than what I've done prior? So my body became loud and I thought to myself, well, what can I do with this loudness of my body? And so that's one way that we might retool or we re-examine our existence. Uh, but other times, uh, I think it's perfectly fine to just use disease as a different framework for thinking about your life and really where you want to be headed with your life. Whether in certain historical philosophical traditions or in our everyday language, we often talk about our minds and our bodies as if they are two distinct things. However, as we have been exploring during the first segment of today's show, during times of high stress, anxiety, or physiological dis-ease, not only does our body become more apparent to us, but how our physical and mental conditions are intertwined does as well. In the story from his life that Matthew shared with you all at the top of the show, His mental health and physical health were so connected that dealing with one was not only helping the other, but as he discovered over his several months of recovery process, his body and mind had to be treated simultaneously. One of the reasons we wanted to share this story with listeners is because there is one, and in my opinion, at least, dominant narrative in popular media in which the voices for mental health awareness are celebrities, actors, athletes, and social media influencers who share their personal experiences with anxiety and or depression, for example. But so much of our collective awareness of, and improvement in the services we can provide for mental health and mental illness, requires a much more localized and less celebrity-focused conversation. That is, we need to be more comfortable discussing our mental health, and battles with it, with one another, just in our daily conversations, in order to have a greater, more positive effect on how we recognize and treat mental health on a community or social level. 
We'll take a closer look at the effects of COVID-19 on our mental health in the second half of today's show. But for now, here's Tom discussing the deeply intertwined nature of our mental and physical health, the physical toll that poor mental health can take on our bodies, and how depression, for example, is itself a particular kind of embodiment. When I was growing up, I used to have a lot of disassociation moments where I would it would feel like you know these out of body experiences and um, those types of experiences I think are are they seem not to be a moment of loudness of the body because it doesn't seem like we're we're outside of our body in those moments but now that I think about it it was a moment in which I was more aware of my body because I was looking at it and I was feeling some type of uncomfortable disconnection with my body and I think that just the the way I approach embodiment is I don't really make a strict disconnect between the mental and the physical. Um, I really do think that when we are experiencing a depression, we experience it through our body uh, and that affects the way that our bodies are engaging with the world. So if you're depressed, you might have a um, a different way of inhabiting your space. Um, things become messier, things become uh, disorganized. Uh, you really don't have a good grasp on, on like what you want to do in the in the coming times. Um, so, from a from a mental illness point of view, I think disease is uh, the symptoms of a mental illness certainly count as disease, and, and then they express a very particular instantiation of of a of a different embodiment or an uncomfortable embodiment. To close out our conversation with Purdue Philosophy graduate student Tom Doyle, we wanted to call attention to a term that you may have noticed Tom use a couple of times in our conversation, hyper-awareness. It's a great term to describe our current condition during the pandemic. We are currently hyper-aware of our bodies and potential symptoms of the virus. We are hyper-aware of the bodies around us and their potential symptoms. We are hyper-aware of the cleanliness of our hands. We are hyper-aware of aspects of our world we may previously have paid no attention to, things such as supply chains, food insecurity, the timeline for developing, and the economics of a vaccine, the power structures behind our working life and our consumerist habits. We are also hyper-aware of our social isolation, our neighbors and their comings and goings, their following public health orders or not, and how many people they gather with on their front porch. One manifestation of this hyper-awareness and general social anxiety during the pandemic is, for example, what Tom calls erratic social behavior. Take, for example, the hoarding of disinfectant wipes. Many of us have disinfectant wipes on hand in our houses and at the office. But how many of us typically bought cases of disinfectant wipes before, say, March of 2020? What is especially interesting, to me at least, is that we are hyper-aware of these seemingly odd and erratic behaviors as manifestations of our other hyper-awarenesses. That is, it is not just that our current hyper-awareness of the vulnerability of our bodies and our susceptibility to disease may be causing certain erratic behaviors in some people, or significant changes in our own daily social and hygiene routines. It is also that many of us have had more time to ourselves, or in our homes, to consider these things, dwell on them, and to scroll through our phones to watch videos and read stories about the pandemic itself and what may typically be deemed strange social behavior. Further, the looming specter of COVID-19 as a possibility in our own bodies and its long-term effects on our economies is, for now and as far as we can tell the immediate future, 
an unwelcome companion we seem unable to expunge. I think sharing in uh, this collective disease has kind of made us hyper aware of our bodies. I think in, in some instances, um, mm. we see a lot of people doing things that they normally wouldn't do. I, I think very kind of erratic or strange behaviors, like such as like hoarding groceries and stuff like that. We all watch the <laughs> news and know about all of these cases of just like these erratic and strange behaviors. And I think that the reasoning for that is just a hyper awareness of, of our bodies and the fact that our bodies are vulnerable. And what what's happening now is that COVID-19 is a possibility in everyone's mind. And, and so, I mean, and, and the social script we have of COVID-19 is of course, this is a, a fatal and deadly illness and it very much is a fatal and deadly illness, but that's on everyone's mind. And so I think, What's happening is just a collective awareness of people's uh, vulnerable bodies. Uh, the fact that COVID-19 is always a possibility for someone, it really makes everybody just super concerned and it, it causes them to engage differently within the world. So I think that, uh, yes, uh, definitely the, it, it's, uh, there can be a social disease and we can see that social disease, but we can just see the the trends in erratic behavior and erratic economic behavior too that's just happening uh, all across the board. As we've been discussing in today's episode, when we are sick, our bodies announce themselves to us in a different way. As Tom Doyle puts it, our bodies become loud. And this loudness affects not only the way we experience our own, typically quiet bodies, but it also affects the way we, as embodied beings, experience the world around us. Given the fact that COVID-19 is not a tangible or perceptible threat, we are also experiencing the bodies of those around us differently during this pandemic. And we discussed how experiencing our body as diseased can affect our mental health and vice versa. When we are suffering from poor mental health or from a severe and persistent mental illness, this can affect our physical health as well. If we can say that our bodies are currently under constant threat of contracting COVID-19, so are our minds, in a sense. The effects on our mental health of the stress of going about the mechanics of daily living, going outside, interacting with people, going to work or a grocery store or the dentist, has caused anxiety and depression in many people, as have the economic downturn and the general social isolation. Particularly in the early phases of the pandemic and the subsequent economic shutdown, we heard the term uncertainty repeatedly. To give a couple examples, we were uncertain of the long-term outlook of the virus itself and the effect on the economy. We were uncertain of how effective something like wiping down our groceries could be towards stopping the spread of the virus. For those of us that, like myself, were unfamiliar with the term, we were uncertain of what exactly an asymptomatic carrier is. Yet, many people kept going outside into the grocery store and hanging out in groups even with the public health warnings and the uncertainty. We may be seeing in certain social behavior, or lack of adopting certain highly recommended behaviors, a form of denial. 
The intangibility of COVID-19, combined with the desire to believe that things are not as bad as they seem, might be part of the reason that things have only gotten worse to this point, especially in the U.S. Dr. Dan Kelly, professor of philosophy at Purdue, whom you may recall from the first episode of the series, likens this social reaction to the social reaction to climate change. Before shifting to a discussion of mental health and healthcare proper for the remainder of this episode, we thought Dan's comments provide some helpful insights to understanding why some portions of the population have responded so defiantly to COVID-19 and the advice of experts for best practices to reduce the spread of the virus. This atmospheric, as Dan calls it, aspect of the media coverage of COVID-19, information about it, its potential to affect any one of us at any time, and in a sense the disease itself, may account for some of the larger scale social denial of the disease. It is this atmospheric aspect that also seems to account for the stress and anxiety so many of us feel during the pandemic. I mean, I would guess there's there's a big piece of motivated cognition involved. Like people don't want this to be so bad, and so then they don't want to think about it being so bad or whatever. Um, I mean, there, there's interesting, and people have been writing about this on uh, you know different sort of think PC media outlets, but the, the overlap between what's happening with the COVID thing and what's happening with climate change, there's some mm. really interesting analogies there. So it's sort of a slow creep thing, which is it's systemic. There's not an, there's not like a bad guy that we can bomb. It's hard to know who to blame, but it's like, hmm. um, it, it's something which is almost atmospheric and it's, it's permeation of everything else that we're doing, right? And so a lot of the machinery of denial um, both individually and institutionally, which has been up and running for, you know, uh, with respect to climate change for decades now, you're seeing a lot of the same patterns sort of coalesce when it comes to COVID. COVID's moving a lot faster, um, but it has a lot of character traits that um, climate, the climate change, the sort of slow creep of the climate change crisis does as well. If we agree that we are currently living under a fog of uncertainty and bodily vulnerability during the pandemic, that should concern us not only as far as our national and international economic outlook is concerned, or as far as our physical health is concerned, but we should also be worried about our mental health during this time. Such a sudden, global, scary, potentially fatal shift in circumstances and our ability to be financially secure is bound to cause stress and anxiety on a massive scale. Perhaps some people are comfortable in a space of denial about the facts and the less-than-optimistic outlook of the near future. There are also people that during the social isolation dwell on the negative and have little outlet, social or otherwise, to process and cope with the current global circumstances. All of this speaks to our need to be hyper-aware, to borrow Tom Doyle's term, of our own mental health and that of our friends, families, loved ones, neighbors, and communities near and far. Poor access to mental health care and the social stigma against people who need or seek mental health care are not new. COVID-19 has increased awareness of these matters for some of us, but it certainly did not cause a mental health crisis. Many experts have been warning politicians and community leaders about a pandemic of mental health and the poor access in many communities to mental health care for decades. Dr. Amy Martin, a bioethicist at IU Health and frequent voice in this series, speaks to the need pre-COVID for improved mental health care and hopes that one positive outcome of the pandemic is a major structural push in this direction. I really think that mental health and addressing mental health pre-coronavirus was something we've really been talking about 
the need for. And I think that this scenario and the after effects of this scenario most, most specifically are really going to demonstrate the need for it. And I really hope we amp up our, our mental health game um, in the U.S. It's been a long time coming and maybe this, maybe this is the tipping point or the catalyst to do so. Um, I think if we don't, another version of shadow um, deaths is going to come out of it. And to me, it seems untenable to even have that thought process because we should just be addressing it. It's certainly sobering to think that some of the shadow deaths, or deaths that occur in the wake of COVID-19, though not themselves a result of the virus per se, could be related to our mental health and potentially at a significant scale. Matthew and I have had many conversations with our friends, colleagues, and family over the last few months, in which we all agree that this is a crazy, unprecedented time unlike anything we have ever experienced. So the toll this will take on some minds seems, unfortunately, likely to cause great stress and anxiety. So how do we address these mental health issues that we are facing, not just generally, but in a time of social isolation, physical distancing, and shifting protocols for how we access healthcare? Will people who are struggling with their mental health recognize these symptoms or seek out mental health care when necessary? There are barriers between those who need it and mental health care. The cost of mental health care, lack of health insurance or that which covers certain mental health care services, access to mental health care, which during the pandemic includes access to the appropriate technology, a topic to which we will return shortly, and the aforementioned social stigma against the mentally ill, or those that actively seek mental health care. This latter piece can often deter people from taking the necessary steps to address their health care, as can denial in the form of convincing yourself that what you are experiencing is not serious enough to seek help, especially if we tell ourselves that in a time like this, everyone is going through similar mental struggles. But the possibility that millions upon millions of us are experiencing similar struggles and emotions only underlines our need to provide better health care to our communities, rather than being a reason to ignore the signs of suffering mental health. In some ways, I think people will not access it because everybody's in the same boat that I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. We're all going through this. The person you know, down the hall or across the street or down the road has it worse than I do. I'm fine, right? I know I'm not fine and I'd really like to access this, but I'm fine. Um, Everybody else is dealing with this. But I also think maybe on the other side of the coin or the brighter side of the coin is that if we normalize the need for mental health help in this time, more people will access it. It just has to be available. I think that the healthcare uh, industry and, and the mental health industry, specifically therapists, have done a really good job in this moment of making themselves accessible um, via, you know, some version, some version of, um, you know, Skype or FaceTime or whatever. And that a lot of places have made it um, cost friendly for people, specifically because the people that probably need it most are people that are financially insecure um, because of the mental health effects of not having jobs and financial insecurity and food insecurity makes it even more important for them to access. And I, I, I applaud the providers in, in really making this work as, and being very available in this time. Before we explore the role of technology in mental health care during the COVID-19 pandemic and potentially afterward, We wanted to consider the people who are providing mental health care during this pandemic. 
As much as we need to focus on the improvement of mental health care and access to it across the board, now and in the future, we also need to acknowledge the difficulty of being a provider or caregiver in the field during a time like this. Much as we discussed the challenges of being a physical health care provider during a pandemic in Episode 3 of this series, we wanted to take time to recognize those mental health care providers that continue to be there for their patients, clients, clinics, hospitals, and organizations, even at a time when their own mental health is likely to be suffering due to all the uncertainty, social dis-ease, and anxiety that we have been discussing in today's episode. To get a frontline perspective on this, we return to Dr. David Bernard, attending physician in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's of Alabama, whose insights into the shifts in emergency and pediatric health care were a central part of Episode 3. So I am privileged to serve as the president of the board of directors for the Crisis Center Birmingham. Uh, and there's, you know, most major communities have their own crisis center and they meet lots of functions, but the core mission of crisis centers has always been crisis and suicide lines. So being the lines that provide free confidential telephone counseling 24 hours a day. And so Crisis Center Birmingham obviously answers local questions, but uh, calls to the national suicide crisis prevention line also get routed to us if they're from callers in our area. And so what Crisis Center has found is that these call volumes went up tremendously. And, uh, and so our number is about 50%, again, reflecting the suffering and isolation. And really, really difficult on the staff because what all institutions did is they sent volunteers home, right? So only core mission, you know, come into the facility and continue working. So all the volunteers got sent home. So with that, there's that much more pressure on the staff who are, as you mentioned, suffering tremendously. They are in their own pandemic and suffering, yet they're you know, working extra shifts on the crisis suicide line to talk about all these people suffering. And so one of our challenges was to speak to their mental health during this pandemic, to the mental health of the caregivers. And so we've you know, worked on lots of processing groups and everything we can to try to support them as they take care of the needs of everyone that's calling. You know, we're all disrupted. Hopefully we will gain numerous and valuable insights during this pandemic regarding our infrastructure of and access to mental health care. And hopefully these insights will improve the health of the patients, the health of the providers, and the platforms available to people through which they can access mental health care. One of those platform shifts during the current pandemic, especially during the economic shutdown, was the ability to access mental health care, and in particular therapy, from the comforts of our own home. As we've said, it was this being at home all day long, our social isolation, that was the cause for many people to seek therapy. Amy Martin addresses the shift to online therapy platforms and some potential limitations to it here. My brother-in-law is a therapist and he's, his platform has shifted to online. The requests for therapy is, have obviously shifted to dealing with, um, he does a lot of relationship therapy and a lot of that has shifted to like being stuck at home together and working in the same space, uh, living in an apartment in Chicago that's 600 square feet and, you know, mm. all of that type of stuff is, it has shifted. But the sad part about the platform is it cuts out or privacy is an issue, you know, so some of those things won't be fixed. And so some of the norm will come back because of those things. As Amy mentioned, technological limitations and a general desire to be back out and about may motivate some people to return to in-person mental health care and therapy. So simply offering online options to provide better mental health care to more people 
will not be enough to make the changes we need to make in our mental health care infrastructures after the pandemic. Dr. Dave has heard of similar benefits and drawbacks in mental health care from some of his friends and colleagues as those shared by Amy a moment ago. According to Dr. Dave, the shift to teletherapy and online mental health care platforms may reduce the barriers between some people in mental health care. It could also reduce the hesitation some people have in seeking mental health care. Further, many providers have found the transition to the online platform a seamless one, resulting in equally effective interactions with patients. One consideration for after the pandemic, however, is how much financial support there will be to continue to build these platforms and provide mental health care in an online environment and in the traditional in-person venues. Which is to say that the development of online platforms is not a cure-all for mental health care access if larger systemic issues are not addressed. My friends in the mental health industry that have gone strictly to uh, telemental health have really liked it. They feel like they've been equally effective, uh, particularly for established patients and whatever. And so they would like to see ways to be able to continue to do that. And I think you're right. I think, you know, is it less of a barrier to access a therapist if you can do that from uh, the privacy and confidentiality of your own abode? Is that less vulnerable and make, Will that make you more likely to do that? We don't know the answer for that. So I think there are lots of possibilities of things continuing that could make our system better. But that depends on how you prioritize things as a society. So is our society going to put more money into mental health care? Certainly the answer prior to the pandemic was absolutely not. We were cutting back money uh, in mental health care. Are we going to put more money into access for health care for all? Certainly, before the pandemic, um, that was not necessarily the priority uh, of the current government. And so some of it depends on how we respond as a society and going forward. The access to mental health care, having enough providers to provide it for particularly people who do not have ways to pay for it is a huge issue. And so whether this is going to result in more mental health care providers who are accessible, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. That's going to be balanced against the fact that probably the number one driver of uh, mental health problems is isolation and loneliness. And guess what we've done as a society? We've enforced isolation and loneliness for uh, now three and a half months. So what is that going to look like? Uh, I think you know, the initial response was crisis lines are up 50%. People are hurting and suffering. Uh, domestic violence rates are up. All those things that come out of isolation and suffering and loneliness are worse in our society because of this. And so that pandemic, you know, we've not really even started talking about. The need for improved healthcare infrastructure and better access for more people was, as mentioned, a topic of episode three of this series. And we are hearing in this episode that the same need for improved infrastructure and better access for more people applies to mental health care as well. And, of course, the more the virus spreads and makes people reluctant to go outside and into public spaces, especially those where diseased bodies are likely to gather, hospitals, waiting rooms, even mental health care providers, the more people will socially isolate, and thus the more people may need new methods of accessing mental health care. It's an interesting and disturbing feedback loop. 
The more COVID-19 forces states and cities to require social isolation as an epidemiological response to the disease, the more that localities will, sensibly, limit what people can go out and do and what kinds of businesses and services they can access. However, the more we stay inside and socially isolated, the more anxious and disconnected we may feel. The less we can or want to be out and about and spending money, the more our economy suffers, on the local, national, and international levels. And this economic effect can result in the loss of jobs and reduced financial security for many people, which then in turn adds stress on families and individuals. We have been clear to this point of the series, but it bears reiteration here, that we support and agree with decisions to limit economic flows to reduce social interaction between people, especially in places where a concentration of potentially diseased bodies is likely to occur. But as we are exploring the effects on mental health in this episode, we wanted to fairly demonstrate how so many of these threads get intertwined to create significant stress and anxiety in our daily lives. But where individual choices in particular for how to access mental health care are concerned, much of that will come down to the comfort level of the patient, both with the service and the platform, as well as their comfort with being outside of the home, generally speaking. As Amy Martin sees it, the shift to online mental health care will likely bring some people in, but many people may simply long for the good old days of being out and about and having in-person conversations with people in the world, let alone with their therapist. I think that healthcare will learn a lot from this scenario, not only in how we make care accessible, but how we provide care, what the model of healthcare looks like, I think will shift a little bit, hopefully in a positive way. Hopefully, you know, the fact that we've um, had some lifting of regulations during this time to provide care to people at home will change the nature of how we provide care in a way that's beneficial primarily to patients and then secondarily to the healthcare system. Uh, that um, it will, especially again, mental health will feel more accessible to patients in a way that they'll seek it out because I can just sit on my bed and have this conversation with my therapist instead of having to like get out of my sweatpants and go to their office. Um, I think people immediately kind of quote unquote after uh, this scenario will want to have more direct contact as possible. I think that then, you know, there'll be a, a like, I want to be part of the, the human social gathering population at some <laughs> point. And then I think that people will go back to like, oh, I can do this at home. People will want to go to work and will want to go to their therapist. Um, but then they'll go, oh, wait, I remember when I could do it at home. And I kind of liked that too. So I think there will be a shift. Whether it's looking at the need for improved mental health care as a result of and during the pandemic or after the pandemic, one thing seems clear. Change is needed. And much of that change will come down to increased awareness regarding mental health and illness, mental health care, and access to that care. As we have said, if there is any silver lining to this unfortunate COVID cloud, Perhaps it is that so many more people seem to be having this conversation and are now recognizing the need for systemic change. But sometimes conversations around the need for systemic change, where healthcare is concerned, can feel too big, too abstract. Many of us want to have more immediate impact on people, both in terms of time and locality. Yet, during a pandemic such as this one, even that feels beyond our grasp. So what can we do to be there for those in our communities that need us the most? at a time when so many people need to be relying on others. 
and when we ourselves are feeling the anxieties that may be preventing us from being our most productive and attentive selves. We end today's episode with Dr. Dave's always illuminating and inspiring insights. The fact is, we were all terrified. We were all scared. And, you know, early March till now is an absolute blur of what happened, how did I get through it, and yes, did I take care of enough people in my community? I did not. Did I try? Did I call as many people as I could? Did I check in with as many people as I could? I did, but I don't think it was enough. I don't think there's anything we can do to to meet that degree of suffering. We just, we gotta try. When everyone around you is suffering, then just realizing that and acknowledging that, none of us, you know, on thousands of interactions brought our best selves, you know, to most of the conversations because of the exhaustion, the sheer terror, the fear, and whatever. But, you know, everyone I know tried, right? And I think acknowledging that all these people you encounter uh, are suffering as greatly or more than you and the people in your community, I mean, that's how it starts, right? And I'll throw it back to you philosophers as to the meaning of this suffering in our society and for humankind. That's much more a philosophical question, but from a community perspective is all we can do and try. And, you know, and hope that part of this funding conversation that comes from funding programs there's a tremendous amount for mental health because that's that's the pandemic that's just beginning is how do you take care of people when you're suffering so much and that was the golden question that you know each one of us has struggled with you know i can barely get vertical yet there's so much to take care of and we all have had will have so many days like that we're scared to death but we also know we are the people that take care of the people around us. And how do you do that? And how do you continue to do that? It's, it's a challenge to all of us, right? The virus is really, really asking us to take care of each other because that's the only way we're going to survive it as a society is that we take care of each other. And that starts with appropriate physical distancing and masking so that we're less likely to spread the virus on, but also doing everything we can to support uh, the suffering in our communities. We'll end today's episode with those words from Dr. Dave. We want to thank all of our guests today and of course throughout the series, but in particular, we wanted to give a big thank you to Tom Doyle. As I mentioned at the top of the show, when we started that interview, we had no idea what direction it was going to take, and I did not know that Tom had that story to share. So it affected us in the moment. There were definitely some pauses and moments of silence during the interview, but thanks to Tom for being so willing to share that story and for allowing us to share it with you all. Thanks to you listeners for joining us as always. This wraps up episode 5 in the series. We'll be back next week, Friday, July 31st, with our next episode about economics during the pandemic, the effects of the shutdown on the larger economy, and global food supply chains. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook, 
at philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at philo, underscore Purdue.